This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I will be talking to Sarah Quinn, who is the author of American Bonds, How Credit Markets Shaped a Nation. The book is published by Princeton University Press, and I have the real pleasure to have Sarah on the phone today. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, it's a, I, uh, I, I've read this really, really interesting book. Um, and learned a little bit about you and your background. Would you share a little bit about who you are before we talk uh, about your book? Sure. Uh, I'm an associate professor of sociology at the University of Washington, and I'm an economic sociologist, so I tend to study uh, politics and culture and markets. Yeah, the the, the book, and, and um, I can imagine in, in its research and its writing how you span so many different areas of of expertise and weave them together. You must have felt like you were wearing three or four or five different disciplinary hats each time you sat down to work on this book. Um, It really does feel like something it would speak to a number of different uh, areas, including political science. Um, And so, so let's, let's talk about the book, American Bonds. Um, uh, You know, as I suggest, the book covers a lot of ground. Um, but the the key terms, I think, are, are likely unknown or, or maybe even misunderstood by, by even the most attuned readers of American policy development. I wonder if we could start with, with some, some definitions um, uh, of two of those terms. So um, what is securitization? And, and in general terms, uh, what are federal credit programs? Maybe we can start there and, and then we can move on. Yeah, those are great questions. So securitization is a financial technology, uh, and it involves taking a group of assets like mortgages and combining them into a pool and then selling off shares of the pool. And since the 1980s, this has really um, grown to be the center of global financial systems, and it was the financial technology at the heart of the housing bubble that preceded the 2008 crash. Uh, So that's securitization. Uh, Federal credit programs are government programs that buy, sell, insure, or guarantee loans, or otherwise try to direct credit to certain parts of the economy or certain groups by incentivizing lending. Um, And the reason... The reason I study them together is because our modern securitization market um, is uh, actually grew out of a lot of part of a broader effort of the federal credit programs. 
yeah, the these um these concepts and sort of the study of of um, the government's role in credit markets and lending and in in um, how loans have shaped the country um, makes it such an interesting and historic read. Um, at the start of the book, you introduce this idea of political lightness. And I think it has a lot to do with the sort of the political science of this, uh, of these um, uh, concepts that are really drawn out of out of finance and the, and the study of markets. Um, I don't think I've seen this phrase before, but it, it's so fitting for your subject matter. Um, what do you mean uh, that credit policies um, are uh, can have this sort of effect of being politically light? When I started studying why the government was so active in getting involved in credit markets the way it was, it became really clear very quickly that it wasn't just that markets need help, though it's true that markets need help, and, and uh, a lot of scholars have studied that for a long time, but it was also that government officials were using credit and inducements around credit markets to solve all sorts of problems. So if you want to increase access to higher education, uh, why not offer school loans? Or if you want to promote infrastructure, rather than taxing and spending money on infrastructure, you could guarantee the loans of a private company that's doing it. So I wanted to understand why credit was being used in those ways, especially at times uh, when a problem didn't necessarily have to be considered a credit problem. And what I learned, and drawing from uh, some, especially drawing from some other scholars who've been researching federal credit, is that uh, credit has a lot of flexibility politically. In some ways, it's a lot like tax expenditures. So it's easier to pass through um, through committees. It uh, when you when a government issues a loan, it, that loan may get paid back, so it might make money over time. A guarantee doesn't cost a government anything until the loan, um, unless or until the loan itself goes bust. Um, they are easy to get off budget. They often work through partnerships and they kind of sound and seem like the market, which gives them a broad ideological appeal and government officials a lot of flexibility for how they talk about it. And all of this adds up to it being a really, really useful policy tool. So government officials figured out pretty early on that they could use credit to solve a lot of problems and importantly, to solve problems in ways that were kind of easier to pass than um, other more expensive programs. Now, many of the the references you've made so far are somewhat contemporary uses of, of this policy tool, but but the book really does trace this back into its much longer history and is part of why uh, your subtitle, uh, How Credit Markets Shaped a Nation, is is accurate. This is really a, a historical look at this. Um, in, in one of the early chapters, um, you look at the movement of the U.S. westward, and we, we typically think of this as, as one that's really a story of politics and war, but you, you add to this finance. Um, why were innovations in lending practices so important to expansion in the U.S.? But yeah, I often start with contemporary examples to try to make it relevant for people. But I do, as I was doing the research on this project, I came to believe that this was the kind of relationship of U.S. political institutions and U.S. financial markets 
have some of these core dynamics that go back to the earliest days of the nation. Um, so it looked, the use of credit looked really different at different times. So I actually open up with uh, a discussion of, started, I start after the Revolutionary War, when the federal, when the national government uh, is looking for a way to pay down war debt uh, and doesn't want to raise taxes and realizes that it can sell off land, that it has lots of land that it can use as a resource. And it goes to kind of sell off this land. And even with selling off the land in what seems like a pretty cheap way, settlers still couldn't afford it. So the government, the land offices, starts uh, selling this land on credit. And it ends up being part of a boom and a bust in 1819, where millions of dollars are defaulted. Uh, to the federal government, um, and two dozen relief acts are passed around this policy to provide some relief for settlers. And I argue that this is actually a core dynamic, um, that government officials uh, continually turn to land as a resource and to property ownership as a resource, as a political resource, but land also always involves credit. Um, so they, you land itself in a kind of a capitalist system doesn't mean anything unless you can sink some kind of money into it to turn it into a farm or to allow somebody to buy and sell it. So because the U.S. government was always in the real estate business, it always had to grapple with credit markets, but it looks really different ways at different times. So in the 19th century, to the extent that we get credit programs, what we really get are these ad hoc programs that are really backup for something else. So you get credit supports for the railroads. It's a backup for another policy and it's gonna end. What changes in the, in the um, sorry, that's in the 19th century, what changes in the 20th century is that credit really comes into its own as its own policy tool and is used systematically and widely for a variety of policy reasons and across sectors. Now, later in the book, you describe this, this fascinating trip a group of lawmakers take to Europe in, in 1912. Uh, this trip ended with the adoption of the Federal Farm Loan Act. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, where this U uh, U.S. delegation went, uh, what they were particularly impressed by, and, and what they brought back to the U.S. at the end of the trip. I'm so glad you mentioned it, because that is actually one of my favorite parts of the story. So um, what happened for much of the 19th century is after getting burned with the Farm Loan Act, especially, um, and with a lot of, uh, with a lack of kind of political support for the government to be systematically involved in credit markets, there was just this endemic problem with access to credit. And it's not that there were credit shortages so much, is that there'd be these huge booms and these big busts, and it was very destabilizing. And what you have happening by the um, early 1900s is progressives are looking towards U.S. farms, realizing that there's huge problems um, with farm communities, and they realize very quickly that credit distribution is a part of the problem, that if farmers don't have access to kind of regular, reliable credit for farming, uh, their communities just won't thrive. So um, as was pretty common in the progressive era, uh, 
uh, commissions are sent over to Europe to investigate uh, to investigate European solutions. And this, the commissions they send for to figure out farm credit are the biggest of the commissions from the U.S. that kind of went over to Europe at the time. And they tour the entire continent. They go um, even to Egypt. And they're going around Europe looking to see what other countries are doing. And what they end up adopting is a version of the Prussian system. In fact, when it comes to figuring out long-term credit, nation after nation is adopting in some way and adjusting the Prussian system. Because the Prussians had figured out way before anybody else how to move credit across a large, sparsely uh, populated frontier. Um, through these uh, through these banks that issued bonds that were backed by mortgages. So when they get to to Germany, they're asking about these um, the system of farm loan finance, and they decide to bring it back to the U.S. that this is the best system, but they're going to make it uh, an American system. And what that means is they say, look, the the German system has very careful credit protections based on the fact that every farmer in the system is entirely on the hook if another farmer that's connected to their land bank uh, goes under. And we're not going to do that in the U.S. Uh, Americans just won't be that interested in taking care of each other. So we're going to make it so there's like less of a liability for other people. They come back with this organizational ideal an idea, but I also argue that really importantly, they come back with a new way of thinking and talking about systematic government involvement in credit distribution. Um, before it was really seen as a dangerous form of paternalism in the U.S., and what they bring, what the Commission brings back from Europe, is this idea that credit can be a way for the government to help people help themselves, and so it's not paternalistic and it's not government overreach. It's just a way to boost. The, the private market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, as the country moves from a largely agrarian to a manufacturing economy based in cities, you describe a shift to government finance for home ownership. Um, uh, again, this is, this is more than just about finance. This is about um, political and, and social meaning. Um, how did government lending programs feature in this dramatic societal shift away from the family farm? So, um there's always high levels of property ownership in the U.S. What you get with uh, industrialization as people move into the city, are you're going to get moving into the 20th century increasingly high levels of of home ownership, and uh, the government, the federal government, just kind of first starts with um, farm loan distribution. Uh, with the Federal Farm Loan Act in 1916, but it's going to move dramatically in the New Deal towards supporting home ownership. Um, so the the federal the um, home loan bank system is in many ways 
uh, set up uh, following the model of the home of the farm loan system. Uh, and you get in the New Deal as as uh, as home ownership, uh, urban home ownership, and suburban home ownership becomes more important. Massive amounts of government credit support for housing, and it's very explicit that you know FDR understands that um, credit is an affordable way to promote home building, and home building is not just about housing policies. Home building is also an industrial policy. Home built home construction is a major employer. It's about um, keeping people employed, and it's about promoting all the industries that uh, go into building a home. So not just uh, the wood and the brick that goes into the house, but also the transportation of those resources to a home, and then all the consumer goods that go into the home. So the federal government is very figures out very quickly that they can use credit, home credit, to support the economy. And they actually figure out not long after that, that if you can use credit to boost the economy, you could also use it to slow it down. So what you have by the middle of the post-war era is that uh, government regulations of uh, credit markets and housing finance are really being used as, a, as part of a system for controlling uh, the growth of the economy. So it really puts kind of housing credit at the center of a lot of dynamics in U.S. markets. Now, you describe many of these programs, and, and we've, we've just named and alluded to a small number of them, but there are many more built around a similar kind of formula. But you describe them as largely successful in, in addressing a variety of social programs, uh, including recovery from the Great Depression. But, but on race, the is, issue is not quite so clear. Um, how do African-Americans participate in, in these programs, especially the housing programs? And what, what explains why, why this typically fails for that community? Uh, so this is an uh, area that uh, sociologists have been studying for a really long time. The housing credit programs adopt and institutionalize and consecrate a set of kind of redlining maps that exclude uh, people of color from the housing, uh, from the government credit program. And this becomes an absolute engine of racial inequality. So being excluded from the federal credit programs means that you're excluded from neighborhoods where people can rely on the fact that a lot of people will be able to get mortgages and move in. And because of the way the U.S. political economy works, um, all sorts of things are tied to that. So uh, what, what I mean by that is um, it means exclusion from um, high kind of tax wealthy neighborhoods with well-funded schools. It means excluded, exclusion from social networks and from a set of new job opportunities that are growing up in the suburbs. And it means exclusion for what's going to be for what becomes the main form of wealth for American families. So, uh, and it's doing all of this in a way that um, is also a way of being excluded from a massive social program that's helping families build wealth in a way that's not stigmatizing. So you're being excluded from a huge government form of assistance 
that worked by helping kind of construct people as good financial citizens. And it doesn't come with a lot of the stigma that's associated with getting kind of a handout or charity. Now, we started our conversation uh, in, in our current time period, and, and you suggested, uh, as I think many people would know, that the mortgage-backed securities uh, have really been at the center of debates about the, the major causes of the most recent uh, Great Recession. Um, what happened to move securitization from a policy success, if not total, uh, but, but a, a policy success, to a major policy failure? What, what changed um, in, in sort of bold terms uh, that has, has made mortgage-backed securities uh, a phrase that, that even a casual observer knows uh, was, was uh, uh, a real problem in the, in the aughts? end of the uh, 1960s, there are increasing problems with the housing market. And uh, I studied closely the Johnson administration's efforts to take on those problems. And within the existing uh, economic and uh, political institutions of the time, they felt like they really couldn't use the existing channels to solve that problem. Uh, to fix the housing problem, spending a lot of money, issuing a lot of money in mortgages, which would have uh, pushed up government spending towards uh, and deficit spending to the debt limit uh, because it was happening right during the Vietnam War. So what the Johnson administration decided to do was take, uh, take a securitization, which earlier versions of it kind of had been used throughout U.S. history. And in the post-war era, there wasn't a private market for, for reasons I discussed in the book. Uh, But the government offices are actually using those forms to bundle up government assets and sell them off all off book. And they decided to take this uh, securitization and spin off Fannie Mae and have Fannie Mae use it. So the government makes this major investment in support for securitization at the end of 1960s. And this is the foundation of the market that's going to kind of grow up and become the crisis. And it's still with us today. But when they're doing it, they're in such a different world. Uh, The way I like to think about it sometimes is imagine a flatbed truck that's pulling a house down a highway and it has to get up a big hill and the hill kind of high interest rates at the time. They build with securitization a a financial technology that really is very effective at attracting credit. And that's very good for getting up that hill. What they don't realize necessarily is what's about to happen on the other side of that hill, which is that interest rates are going to fall, which is going to speed up the market. There's going to be massive deregulation, which is like taking all the cops off the road, uh, that there's going to be a huge change in information technology um, that's going to speed everything up. It's like putting hyperfuel into the truck that's carrying the home. So they build this tool at a time where they need to kind of overcome a problem and they don't understand that all of these things in about 20 years are really going to spin out of control. And in, in fact, that's what happens. The, uh, the book is, uh, is again titled American Bonds, How Credit Markets Shaped a Nation. 
this is one of those books that when you read the title, you might not first go to it, uh, but you learn so much about uh, American political development uh, through the way these credit marks, uh, markets and, and lending and lending policies work. Uh, the author, again, is Sarah Quinn, and the publisher is Princeton University Press. Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.